Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jeff Shepard, and he published a book November 2021 titled The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate and the Plot to Remove the President. And right now on Amazon in the U.S., it has 41 five-star reviews. It also has an audio book if you're interested in that. But it's really a fascinating book. I read through a majority of it today. Uh, it's not his first book. He published in 2015, The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot That Brought Nixon Down. And then in 2008, he wrote, The Secret Plot to Make Ted Kennedy President Inside the Real Watergate Conspiracy. And he came to D.C. in 1969 as a White House fellow after graduating from Whittier College and Harvard Law School. He was the youngest lawyer on President Nixon's White House staff, and he served on the Domestic Council for five years, rising to Associate Director. He also worked as deputy counsel on Nixon's Watergate defense team. And he spent much of his career researching Watergate issues and is today the most, the foremost authority on behind the scenes developments, both at the White House and the Watergate Special Prosecution Force as the scandal unfolded. And his website is his uh, Shepherd, his last name, Shepherd on Watergate, all one word.com. So you can see his books there and get more information about him. But uh, Jeff Shepard, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. William, thank you for uh, having me on your program. Awesome. For I mean, you have a first-person account of really being there in the White House during when all of this happened. So much preceded the Watergate scandal, happened after. Can you kind of talk about your background, what led you into that kind of arena, into the White House back in those Nixon days? Well, as, as with many people, it was really all fluke. Uh, I was selected to be a White House fellow uh, coming out of Harvard Law School, but largely because, I think to be fair, because I'd gone to Whittier College, and that was Nixon's alma mater. He'd just been elected, and uh, he had given me a personal uh, scholarship when he was uh, out of office as the former vice president, and it's uh, so that kind of got me to the front of the line. Uh, I had a good year uh, at, at the Treasury as a White House fellow, and then I joined John Ehrlichman's domestic council uh, at the White House, and I stayed for five years. And it was just an ideal job. Uh, I worked on uh, public policy issues. The domestic council is the counterpart of the National Security Council. And you, you staff the president on, on uh, uh, policy initiatives that he was interested in. And, and Nixon was a law and order president, and I was uh, working on the crime and drugs issue uh, uh, as I say, for, for five years. Uh, toward the end, uh, I also uh, had a place on his uh, Watergate defense team, and I was deputy counsel. And in that regard, uh, I transcribed the tapes. I ran the document rooms holding the seized files. I briefed the counselors on Watergate issues. Uh, so I was intimately involved. Uh, and I knew everybody on the White House side. I'd been working with them that figure prominently in uh, in Watergate. It it all ended badly, William, as, as you and your listeners know. Nixon resigned in disgrace, and uh, two dozen members of his administration were convicted and imprisoned. It, it remains, at least currently, the greatest scandal in American political history. Uh, what makes my contributions more recently so interesting, I think, is, of course, I knew what was going on behind the scenes in the White House is what we were trying to do. Uh, but I discovered um, 15 years ago that uh, uh, the records of the Watergate Special Prosecution Force uh, were kept at the National Archives. They were technically government employees. And so this was something like learning 30 years later that you had access to the coach's playbook from the team that beat you in the state finals. And you knew what you were trying to do. You know the weaknesses of your team. Now you could read the weaknesses of their team. And what is astonishing is they wanted to win so badly, they cut a lot of corners and they kept records. They left a paper trail uh, of the corners they were cutting and over the course of about the last 10 years, I've uncovered uh, memos that detailed what they were doing. So I not only know what they were trying to do, I know where they uh, got a little overly enthusiastic in their prosecutorial discretion. Uh, 
uh, what, what, what really happened, uh, to just clear it up for your, for your listeners, four of the top prosecutors, uh, when they left office, they took their sensitive files with them. Uh, so we, we didn't get the real inside information. And those files didn't surface until relatively recently. So Archibald Cox, the first special prosecutor, he took his files, and there weren't many, back to Harvard with him. But his top assistant, associate special prosecutor James Vornberg, who came from Harvard Law School with Archie Cox, he took all of his files. And, and they, they kept them until he died, and then they went through them, and they took their sweet time. And they didn't become available till 2015. And I was the first to see them. I first to see both uh, Cox's and Vornberg's. Uh, Leon Jaworski was the second special prosecutor. And the staffs had already been staffed up. He came in, kind of parachuted into the middle of a battlefield where the sides were already chosen. Nobody trusted him. He wasn't from the Ivy League like Cox's people. He certainly wasn't from California like many of the Nixon people. He's from Texas. Uh, and there were strange things going on. So he started keeping a record of what was happening. He'd write memos to his confidential Watergate file. Well, when he left, he took those files with him. Uh, the archives only knew they didn't have many files, but they didn't know what had been produced. He went back to Texas. He left out his career. He died. He gave his files to uh, his uh, law school alma mater, Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And they didn't become available till 2013. And I was the first person to go through them. Uh, and then finally, the uh, there was a gentleman named Phil Lacavara who was counsel to the special prosecutor, and and Phil basically staffed was the personal staff of uh, both Archie Cox and then of uh, Leon Jaworski. He did their memos. He he, he pr uh, primed them before they did events, and he took his files, uh, and he didn't give them to archives until 2020. So these four caches of documents have surfaced in the last 10 years, and they make all the difference in the world. They, they lay out secret meetings with the, pres with, uh, the, the judges, at least a dozen that I've been able to reconstruct with uh, Judge Sereca, who, who did the both cover-up trial, the uh, Watergate burglars trial and the cover-up trial. Uh, and, and for your non-lawyers, uh, the prosecutors are not supposed to meet with judges to work out issues in advance of trial. But Jaworski kept uh, uh, detailed memos on at least four of those meetings on what was discussed. And it's just appalling. You can't do that. You, the defendants deserved a fair trial. Most Americans would agree, William, that uh, no matter how despicable the defendants, no matter how heinous the crimes, they get a fair trial, right? Then we hang them, but they, but at least they get a fair trial. It's, it's enshrined in our bill of rights, uh, but the Watergate defendants didn't get fair trials. Uh, uh, all kinds of due process guarantees were, were omitted in the prosecutor's efforts to, uh, uh, to secure convictions. And my book, right. the Nixon conspiracy details all of that. Now my, right. my first book, if, if I may, Please uh, my first book, from 2008, really details how the Democrats, particularly the Kennedy Democrats, took a third-rate burglary and flipped it, let the real instigators of the crimes go. They were real crimes, you understand? There was a real break-in, there was a real cover-up, but they basically let those people go in exchange for testimony against Nixon's top aides, who somehow didn't think they were that involved. And so there was a real switcheroo. Uh, you may be watching a real switcheroo going on today uh, with regard to the uh, claimed insurrection, what, whether that was a, a protest that got out of, out of control, clearly did, uh, or a armed insurrection that was carefully planned by senior people. Uh, the second book, it came out in 2015, is really aimed at uh, disclosing all of the memos and all of the uh, documents that detail the lack of due process, the secret meetings with a judge, the suppression of evidence that would have been helpful to the defense, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the rehearsal 
with Judge Sirica uh, and the prosecutors of the steps they would take to enable him to name himself to preside over the trial. Uh, you can't pick your judge if you're a prosecutor. That That's not allowable. If that, if that material had come out in a timely fashion, any of the stuff I've uncovered, if it had come out 40, 45 years ago, those convictions would have been thrown out. Now, this last book, The Nixon Conspiracy, which is on sale now, it's kind of a 50-year review of everything we know uh, that happened in Watergate behind the scenes. But there's an added bonus. It shows and focuses on what was done to President Nixon, Nixon himself. And I didn't have this material when I did the earlier book, but I succeeded in getting the prosecutor's secret report to the grand jury and to the House Judiciary Committee, which they nicknamed the roadmap because it would lead to Nixon's impeachment and imprisonment. Uh, I got that unsealed by court order in 2018. And it's posted on NARA's website now. You can go read it. But if you know enough about Watergate and you read it, you can see the falsehoods and the misrepresentations they made to the grand jurors and they made to the House Judiciary Committee, but they made in secret. Those of us who were defending President Nixon had no idea what the accusations were. Now, people who are around today have a little different understanding of how impeachments work. But 50 years ago, when they sought to impeach President Nixon, it hadn't been done in 100 years. And it was pretty much agreed two things. It wasn't clear that you could indict a sitting president. The law was not clear, not clear today. So the better path, if you wanted to get rid of Nixon, was to impeach. But you were going to need to catch Nixon himself committing a crime the equivalent of treason or bribery, which are named in the Constitution. Right. None of this soft stuff high like crimes conspiracy. and misdemeanors. No. Yeah, high crimes and misdemeanors. But you couldn't say, oh, he didn't buy enough postage for the White House mail. So that's a misdemeanor. That wouldn't have work. You needed to get Nixon with his hand in the cookie jar. And the special prosecutor said, we got you. We understand that. And we got him. We can nail him. And we can tell you what he did. He personally approved the payment of blackmail to one of the Watergate burglars. And we can tell you when he did it. He did it on the afternoon of Wednesday, March 31st, 1973. That date is specific. It flows throughout their whole case. And it's not unlike today, the famous date of January 6th. You know, there's some considerable question of what happened. But whatever happened, happened on that day. Well, to the special prosecutors in Watergate, that was the key date. We knew right. this. That's the date John Dean went in to see Nixon. And, and, and in what's called the cancer on the presidency conversation, he says, I've asked to see you because you're going to be called upon to make some decisions and you don't know what's been going on. But there's a cancer. There's a cancer on the presidency. It's growing. It's mutating. And, and we're being blackmailed. And then he explains what people have committed perjury. And, and one of the uh, Watergate burglars wants to be paid off. And the meeting goes on for an hour and a half. We have the tape. I transcribed the tape. I know what it says. Nixon is, this is not Nixon's finest moment because as any good lawyer he explores all kinds of possibilities. What if we paid him? How much would it cost? What if we did it to buy time? But one thing that runs throughout, Nixon knows the truth is going to come out. The issue is how do we address it? And the answer on that tape at that meeting that clearly ends at noon is we need to get John Mitchell down and decide what to do. And so that's what they decide to do. But what happens is that very evening, Wednesday, March 21st at 10 o'clock, the payment is made to Howard Hunt. So the special prosecutor said, we got him. We got a chain of evidence. 
no problem at all. And the book details what that is. You know, uh, Nixon must have told Holloman, who must have told Mitchell, who must have told the paymaster to pay the money. Open and shut. We, 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 we've got him cold. But they couldn't prove it. They didn't get the facts to prove it, so they made it up. And that's what the book goes through. And it's so Howell important said yeah. about corralling their witnesses to create the impression that Nixon must have approved it. And I leave that for your for your listeners because you can understand if it turned out they couldn't prove it, they couldn't have driven Nixon from office. Right. But so Nixon didn't yeah. know. It was a kind of a bluff. I'm sorry, go ahead. It was kind of a bluff. They were bluffing him. We've got all the evidence we need. Well, absolutely. And that's why they named it the roadmap. Trust us. We know. Now, if you print the roadmap out, it's 48 pages. I have it sitting on the shelf right behind me. It's an outline of, of proof. But they, there are citations to their proof. And if you print out the citations, it prints to two reams of paper. Nobody was going to read the citations. They took the assertions in the outline at face value. But I went through after 2018 when this stuff came out and I followed through all those citations and it's not there, William. You know, there's this great line in one so of the important. Sherlock Holmes. Right, so important. There's one of these great lines <clears throat> in the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. It's called The Adventures of Silver Blaze. But you'll recognize, you'll recognize the quote. The constable says to Sherlock Holmes, is there anything else to which you would uh, draw my attention? And Holmes says, well, yes, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And the constable says the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Holmes says, well, that's the curious incident. It's called the dog that didn't bark. And the rationale was the dog knew who the killer was. So when he came into the land, he didn't bark. Well, what is so fascinating about what I've uncovered is the omission of critical evidence by the prosecutors. And right, Brady violation. For people who don't know, it's like one of the standard things you cannot do as a prosecutor is not divulge information to the defense. It's a absolutely. big no-no. Absolutely. You get this part right away. They will walk it's you It's called right the, uh, the Brady rule. They're, the prosecutors have incredible discretion and incredible power and investigative authority and all that, but they have, real, they have rules. It's not win at any cost. And one of the rules... If they discover uh, information that uh, is helpful to the prosecution, uh, helpful to the defense, they have to disclose it. It's supposed to be a fair fight. And these people had information, open and shut proof, that John Dean's testimony had changed. It had been improved to help him get immunity. And the same thing with their other lead government witness. And I, I document all that and go through that in my book too. But they didn't disclose. And again, if that had if that had come out uh, during the trial or or afterwards, those convictions would have been overturned. Right. They, they may have been retried. I mean, it, it, it's not that they had no basis for accusing everybody. It's just they didn't have the proof, and right. and, and the trial was not a fair trial. Right. And you kind of you didn't have a personal you kind of had a personal dislike of Dean and you criticized a lot of his actions in the whole situation. But Watergate was not just a burglary. There were follow ups. There were different um, cover ups. There were other break ins. There were different trials. Very oh, complex yeah. kind of unraveling. It wasn't just one thing. Everybody thinks maybe, you know, Hunt well, it, and it, yeah, it, 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 took, it took two and a half years to run through the disclosure of everything that had happened. Uh, uh, and, and of course, the special prosecution announced uh, at their first press conference, they were going to investigate every allegation of wrongdoing against the Nixon administration. And Watergate was bad enough, but they were going to look under every rock they could find so that went on and on and on. And, and, and you the, make, sorry to interrupt, but you also make uh, analogies or similarities between Trump and this whole situation. You said 
if Trump would have done good to read this book or your information prior to 2017, I think you said yeah, that in the can, intro to the second you, chapter. You, you, the, the book is pure, William. The book deals with Watergate and what we've discovered about what they did then. But the comparisons just jump right off the page. There is an effort to get Trump at the federal and the state level, uh, no matter what. Let's investigate everything he did. I mean, within the last week, the New York people want to say he overvalued the the, the uh, real estate in applying for a loan. That's a crime, and we're going to prosecute him for that crime. And it's ludicrous. It's it is they, they can prosecute ludicrous. every landowner on earth. Yeah, well, everybody to borrow. The you know. Now, it's not in my book because this stuff wasn't there then, but. In Nixon's house out in San Clemente, uh, the Secret Service went through it and they made certain demands. Certain uh, 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 cushions had to be made out of fireproof material. Uh, the the uh, possibility of tripping had to be reduced. The, uh, the flagstone had to be reset. And the, uh, uh, the Congress said, oh, all of those were benefits to you and you owe taxes on that money. I mean, it was it was it was just free kicks against against Nixon. He was a lame duck. He, he was losing power, and the vultures circled and uh, and came down on him like there was no tomorrow. Right, and there were very similarities between Nixon and Trump. The kind of same group of antagonists that Nixon had, Trump had. So media, kind of Eastern elite. Um, things like that. It seemed like it was almost the same kind of lineup. Both Nixon and Trump came into office opposed by every single institution in Washington, D.C. The Congress, the congressional staff, the media, the federal bureaucrats, uh, up and down. Now, the only distinction is that in Nixon's era, there was a monolithic media. There was nobody else. No Fox News, no Newsmax, no, uh, no alternative papers, no talk radio, no podcasts like yours, no way to get the other point of view out. So most Americans who know anything about Watergate, they got it from the Irvin Committee hearings, which were as one-sided as the January 6th hearings are going to be if they get around to public hearings. Or the impeachment, or Trump's impeachment, all one-sided. I mean, yeah. it, it's so, the same yeah. thing. We, we've we seen this movie before. Right. Uh, uh, the, the Irvin Committee, this is really interesting, and it, it's developed in the first book. The Irvin Committee was created by a vote of 77 to zero. Well, that's an odd number coming out of a Senate of 100 people. And what it means is 23 Republicans abstained from voting. Because the Irvin Committee was loaded, there was going to be a majority of Democrats on the committee, so they'd win every vote, and they were only going to look at the last presidential election, no other elections in 1972, and no preceding presidential elections when Nixon and Goldwater were the ones who got screwed. So they didn't want any part of the Irvin Committee hearings, and then it turned out to be what I call a legislative trial. Uh, you, you know, if, if you're indicted, you go into court, you have guarantees of due process from the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. The government has to put on its case through sworn testimony. The witnesses have to be uh, uh, subject to cross-examination. There are rules of evidence. Nothing like that exists on the Hill. The only person under oath is the poor witness. And they leak stuff and they accuse them of wrongdoing and everything else. And then the prosecutors come along afterwards and try to trip them up with, with charges of perjury. And if, if that's all you see, if that's your only source of information, it's no wonder everybody concludes oh, it was a bunch of crooks. Now, one other thing has come out, if I may, Please. that is really enjoyable. And it's on my website, but it's not in the book. And that's because I didn't discover it till after the book was at the publisher's. And that is that after Watergate, the incoming attorney general at the time, Ed Levy, established a group within the Department of Justice whose only mission is to review the discretion exercised by Department of Justice attorneys. As I said, they have so much 
uh, uh, discussion. And so this group is called the Office of Professional Responsibility. It, it's not the Inspector General. This is a little-known office who just reviews complaints of wrongdoing against Department of Justice attorneys. Well, I discovered the existence of that organization on October 3rd, a little over two months ago, three months ago, immediately filed a complaint of the attorney conduct 50 years ago by the Watergate special prosecution attorneys because they were Department of Justice attorneys. And I sent them all three books that are, that are up on your screen. And I said, now, don't think this is too long ago because these guys took their files with them and precluded any knowledge of their wrongdoing. And don't think they're which is probably dead. why they took which is probably why they took their files with them, right? No question, no question okay. about it. Uh, uh, the particularly the Jaworski files, uh, just incredible. And of course, the sealing of the roadmap. It's amazing. It stayed sealed for forty-five years, but you, you, you the the uh, the falsehoods and misrepresentations jump off the page. And then I said, don't think everybody's dead because seventeen of these special prosecutors did a column recently advocating Trump's impeachment and bragging about how they got Nixon that they're positive we should be able to get Trump. So they're didn't around. They, didn't they dust off Dean too? Like I thought he was making the rounds as he, well. Which, John so the Dean, past is present. Yeah. John Dean was the lead witness at the House Judiciary Committee's impeachment hearings when they first started. And this was supposed to be big stuff. And if you listened to it, two really interesting developments. It came out, Jim Jordan was cross-examining, and he says, I understand that that you did wrong. You know, you you were you were convicted, but you paid your debt to society. We get all that, but you don't know about anything that's going on today. And John Dean actually said, you got to listen carefully. He says, I never went to prison. And it's true. This was a setup. John Dean was sentenced to one to four years in federal prison, but he never spent a single night in jail. He was assigned to a witness protection program. He was housed at an army base near uh, Washington for the trial. And the week after the trial, he was set free completely. And Judge Sirica in his book says, we did it to increase his juror credibility. You know, he was yeah, Sarika was super dirty too, right? I mean, well, he was disbarred for for destroying evidence, for encouraging others to perjure themselves, for uh, uh, embezzling money. He's the only person in Watergate who took money, uh, $4,000 in campaign funds to pay for his honeymoon. Uh, uh, and, and he ran the cover up. So the prosecution and the judge decided they had to appear to be punishing him. Uh, but he was he was their lead witness against everybody else, and it came down to his word against theirs, and they wanted the jurors to believe John Dean. So they faked they faked his uh, his internment and his prison sentence. And you I mean you talk to Americans today. I I've been with some former prosecutors and when you say well Dean never went to jail. And they said, that's impossible. He was a key person. The career prosecutors who broke the cover-up would not grant him immunity because they figured out he was so central to the wrongdoing. It was the Irvin Committee that granted him immunity, and they did so because they needed a hero. They were going to dump on Nixon. Right, well, and Dean was up. willing to give away the family jewel, so he was talking not just about the Watergate case. He was trying to reveal everything that the White House was engaged in that may have been That's sketchy as well. absolutely true. Well, yeah, you're a, a lot of people don't know that. You know about this stuff. That was characterized, I read your book. That's in your it book. was That's characterized by John Mitchell as the White House horrors. As White House counsel, John Dean's files contained information about other questionable activities. And when the prosecutors wouldn't give him immunity, he took those files and said, well, there's other wrongdoing I'm going to tell you about so you could grant me immunity. And that was the 17 wiretaps by the NSC, uh, the break-in into Dr. Ellsberg's shrinks office out 
out in uh, California, uh, uh, the uh, what what's called the uh, uh, milk fund, the the improper uh, campaign contributions. There there was an effort in 1970, the congressional by elections, like what's coming up in November, for the White House to raise some money for conservatives to try to get more conservatives in the Congress, uh, and it was called the Townhouse Project, and he took them records on that, and and they sent. Uh, IRS and, and uh, uh, FBI agents to interview, interview 150 prominent Republican donors who made contributions in 1970 had nothing to do with Watergate, but they used the Watergate Special Prosecution Force to try to destroy Nixon, the Republicans' fundraising advantage, and any potential candidates that might run against their favorite, Ted Kennedy, in 1976. Well, right. So that's that the ulterior the, motive is Kennedy 76, Ed Kennedy. That's uh, a, well, and you right. and you know what's going on today. There is a desperate attempt to get all this out by leak or by hearing to affect the midterms and then to try to destroy uh, uh, potential presidential candidates in 2024. They're there, the the, the uh, January 6th committee is not just worried about the Capitol Hill's riot. They've they, they've con, uh, uh, combined the rally down at the Washington Monument. If you went to the rally, you must have committed some kind of wrongdoing. And then the planning for the rally. So they've cast their 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 uh, net hugely. And it, it's uh, yeah, I don't I don't have any inside information, but. I can tell you what came out about the stuff when they when they bagged Nixon. They voided a landslide reelection, totally improperly, and all those records are now coming out. I I, I think what distinguishes my work, William, is on on all three books. I have documents that you can find; they're publicly available, and if you, I made it easy for you too on on the website, it presumes you read the book. But then if you go up under where it says the books up there on the top, go back mm -hmm. up to the top. See, it says the books. Okay, right yep. there. Hold right there. I reproduce all the links to all of the uh, embarrassing documents. It makes it very, very easy for you to find. Most of them are available at the National Archives. Now, I've been writing on this stuff, publishing books since 2008. Nobody has ever challenged the accuracy of the material in my book. If you've got a memo from Leon Jaworski describing his secret meeting with the judge, it's awfully hard to come say, oh, that didn't happen. Oh, you must have made this up. Well, maybe archives made a mistake. Maybe maybe this whole thing is Russian a Russian hoax. No one, no one has ever come forward to challenge challenge my work. And I'm not going away. And the people, the people who read these books uh, uh, are, 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 I think, going to be persuaded that there was massive wrongdoing. And right. one of the weak, well, two main weaknesses. One, there was a monolithic press. So there was no inquiry, no follow through, no help. And secondly, uh, the, the, the Watergate Special Prosecution Force had total independence from the Department of Justice. They had all of their authority, but no review of their work. Right. And they got carried away. They were a specially recruited bunch of Nixon haters who identified the people they wanted to, to bag, and they set about doing it. You know, the great Stalin quote, show me the person, I'll show you the crime. And that's what happened during Watergate. Yeah, it's a shame too. And he had he was kind of like Trump. He had a kind of very successful domestic and foreign policy successes. So he was a competent president, in my opinion. I think you show that in the book too. Hugely right? successful first term. So is Trump. Uh, hugely successful foreign affairs. You had the opening of China, detente with the Soviet Union, ending the Vietnam War, and reassertion of America influence in the Middle East. He saved Israel during the Yom Kippur War. On the domestic side where I worked, restoration of law and order, creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, clean air, clean water, uh, desegregation of the Southern schools, uh, restoration of rights to Native Americans, 
an incredible record of success. Now, I transcribed the tapes. Now, Rose Woods did the first cut, but I verified the transcripts and, and, and was spending a lot of time reaching for those words because some of the tapes are very poor quality. And I can tell you from doing that work that when Nixon learned of the wrongdoing from John Dean on that morning of, of March 21st, his reaction was entirely proper. He said, and it's on the tape the next day, I'm going to call for a renewed investigation. That's how we're going to address this. John Dean, you give me a report, a written report of what you told me yesterday, and I will use that report to call for a new investigation. I mean, it was it's right there on the tapes, but the tapes, they are hard to listen to. They're hard to read in the transcript, but nobody's done it. They rely on the press and, and the biased uh, hearings of the, the Urban Committee and the special prosecutors, and they tell you, oh, no, it's not there. You know, Nixon admits guilt. He's guilty as hell. But you sit there and you go through and you trace the thoughts. You trace the conversation. Nixon was looking for full disclosure. And John Dean was supposed to write the report. He sent to Camp David. He admits he sent to Camp David. right there on the tape. And then he decides at Camp David he can't write that report without incriminating himself. So he goes and hires a criminal defense lawyer to switch his sides. I mean, it's just John Dean's conduct is just incredible, but he's portrayed as a whistleblowing hero. And yet he hired Gordon Liddy. He knew about the campaign intelligence plan. He ran the cover up to protect himself uh, and not the people on the White House staff. It's it's the, the record's clear the other way. It's just getting people to understand it. And the, the books and the website go a long way toward doing that. Oh, let me finish the, uh, uh, the complaint of attorney misconduct. The Department of Justice has to conduct a full and thorough investigation of my many allegations of wrongdoing and render a report. Now, I filed that three months ago. I'm waiting and I'm begging for them to let me come down to the department uh, and present the proof. What do you I, think your odds are of that actually happening? Them following well, up I think that? they're I think they're rather nil. But I'm okay. not going to I'm not going to quiet down. I'm not going to go away. Uh, <clears throat> the, the record is there. If they get into it, if they let me come and explain what I found, they're going to be hard pressed not to do something. I mean, it, it's just it's so clear. I'm biased, but it's so clear. The wrongdoing, the memos, uh, are so precise. You. You really don't know which is the bigger surprise, William, that the prosecutors cheated. I mean, they were all Nixon haters. Of course, they were going to cheat. But they kept a record of their wrongdoing. Right. And I got the record. That's the difference, right. I got the and record. And you were, you were there in 74 when Nixon left the White House. Like, you were oh, really yeah. part of all those. You, Ehrlichman hired you. You knew yep. all those characters. I, I, uh, John Ehrlichman you know. hired me. I, I think he's one of the finest people I've ever met. I reported directly to Bud Krogh, who was the co-plumber. Uh, John John Dean was down the hall. Gordon Liddy was on our staff. Uh, no, I knew and worked very closely with everybody involved. I, I had different opinions. Some I liked, some I didn't like. But this was my first job, William. You remember your first job. And you remember, you know, whether people did what you thought they should do or were doing something else, people who were working more for themselves than the good of the uh, employer. Uh, I, you know, my wife says I live in the past. And because of all this research, I really do. Uh, uh, I, but the past I, is present. All of this, you can see that same overlay, like a carbon copy of the oh, same yeah. mechanics. Same things happening again. Same uh, prosecutorial wrongdoing. Same People congressional uh, excesses, same talking heads and and uh, supposed experts when it's the other party and you do the same thing, their opinion switches. Right. And, and it's say, how bluffing you say and stuff. That yeah. when you, you said the opposite back back then. Yeah, didn't or, Schiff say he had undeniable evidence of Russian collusion and all this stuff? 
They're just, just trying incredible. to you – know, Incredible. He's never, he's never produced it. He was really yeah. sly, William. He'd leave the hearing slightly early. So he beat uh, uh, Representative Nunes, who was the chairman. He'd to beat to him meeting. to the microphones. Yeah. He'd yeah. say, wow, we got stuff. We got irrefutable proof. It's classified. I can't describe it, but just trust me. We got them. Well, in Watergate, it was the special prosecutors who were doing that. We have this secret report. It's grand jury material, so we can't disclose it. Right. But we promise you, this is this is irrefutable. They wrote memos. I got the memos that 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 that, that call this irrefutable, even though it was made up. It was absolutely right. wrong. It's incredible, man. It's really incredible, and it, well, it changed well, the course of human history. Nixon was gone. Um, they well, they got, got rid of Nixon. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Nixon resigned in disgrace. Uh, Trump and Nixon would not like the comparison of the two of them. They're very different people. Trump doesn't like it because he, Nixon got screwed, but Nixon quit. And Trump said he would never quit. Uh, and I believe that. I don't, I don't believe he would. Nixon quit uh, because he couldn't. He couldn't figure out why everybody hated him, the prosecutors in the Hill, because of the secret allegations. And his own party told him they were just going to get shellacked in the midterms if he stayed in office. So he really resigned for the good of the party. Nobody else believes that. Everybody, they, they hate Nixon. They say there were other reasons. Uh, but that's why he, that's why he stopped. Uh, he would have he kept fighting. It's possible the truth would have come out if he had kept fighting. I, I just don't know. Uh, it's, it's one of those unknowns. We can't, we can't go back and undo. But just so your listeners know, there's three other developments. We did a play off Broadway this past summer called Trial on the Potomac. That's on my website too, which is the imaginary impeachment trial of Richard Nixon that he might have gotten if he hadn't resigned. And the only change, go down to, scroll down on the homepage. You're right on the homepage. Sure. Yep, yep. There, back up. To, there, there is, gotcha. trial on the Potomac. Uh, uh, and the only difference is the stuff I've uncovered more recently comes out of the trial. And the audience is treated like United States senators, and they get to vote on the way out. In light of what you've heard, would you have convicted Nixon? Would you have removed him from office? And it's a tough sell because we're bringing out facts they never heard. So the most we can do is have some members of the audience wander out saying, I wonder, I wonder if it's true that John Dean never went to jail. I wonder if it's true that Leon Jaworski met privately with a judge. I know that's not right. And I know it's in the play, but I wonder if the play is accurate. Another thing we're doing we're working on our own documentary. You know, this is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate scandal. This June 17th is the date of the arrest. There are going to be lots of other uh, media coverage, more books and more, more talking heads. Uh, and of course, I'm available, but I, I don't seem to appear because my story is so challenging and inconsistent. Contradicts, right. Contradicts like the you. narrative. Right. But we're going to do our own documentary. Uh, to go through this, th these things that we've uncovered. So we'll have something uh, ready for TV. Uh, and then finally, I hope there's going to be a symposium uh, and that I get to participate that focuses precisely on the Watergate prosecutions. It's more of a symposium for lawyers because we'll get into the, the weeds of what this means and what the Brady rule means and what exculpatory evidence means and whether the judge has a right to appoint himself uh, to preside over the trial, uh, how much, quote, incidental contact can there be between prosecutors and judges, particularly given the memos I've uncovered. Uh, and that's yet to come. That's yet to come. I think I have attracted legal attention to my, uh, my allegations. This book, the Nixon conspiracy is turning out to be a whole lot more popular and known uh, than the previous. Now, for your 
go, go, go down just a touch further and then, sure. and then we'll, uh, we'll end. Uh, I was on Hugh Hewitt's uh, program for nine hours and you see the picture there in the Oval Office out at the Nixon Library. It's uh, Watergate Known and Unknown. It's a, a videoed podcast uh, of, of Hugh Hewitt interviewing me. And those are all available on the website. And they cover everything but the roadmap. The roadmap had not come out then. And if you scroll down a little bit further, uh, I, I, it's a little hard to get back. You got to go back up to the top. Yeah, there you are. Go down a little bit further. Uh, this is the bottom here. is what I see is the job. Oh, well, you got to get rid of uh, Mr. Velman's comments. There oh. you go. That's good enough. Okay, in, 20, in 2019, thank you. Sure. Uh, I gave a, a lecture, uh, a whole semester of lectures at Temple University. So there are 12 hour and a half lectures at the beginning of 2019. And you can watch the lectures. And I also posted the PowerPoint slides. So you can stop it. You can see the document. You know, when I say, look, here's what this shows. Here's the page from Sirica's book. Here's where the prosecutors brag about the false sentencing of John Dean. And if you're, if you got nothing better to do, you can watch the Hewitt podcast. You can watch the Temple lectures uh, uh, and, and you can read the books. I mean, it, it's complicated. It's a, this reads, if I may, this reads like John Durham's most recent indictment. You know, you're sitting there wading through this conspiracy. And I'm trying to explain how the prosecutors cheated. And I, I've had friends who were there at the time, who are law, lawyers, law school graduates, who want to learn what I have to disclose, who said, you know, Jeff, that is really heavy lifting. That is that you're so far off in the weeds. I mean, it's all documented, but it's very hard for your readers to follow you. And I have lots of friends who said, "Got your book? I've gotten into it. Boy, is it interesting!" You know that opening and 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 where where you go through and you describe what was going on. But I don't hear from very many who got through to the last chapter because that I found that's, it very interesting because it's a first person account it reads kind of like a spy novel there's a lot of moving parts but there's actual real kind of CIA involvement with Hunt and McCord Well yeah I was you know I was really there and yeah. strange strange things happened to me uh that didn't happen to anybody else I know stuff uh Hugh told me to stop writing essays about this he said Jeff you're giving away crucial inside information that nobody else knows. You know, I mean, your, your stories, there's no end to your stories. And, and I, I reproduced a, a lot of them in the book because Hugh was urging me to inject myself a little more personally in how this story unfolded. You know, what it was like working near John Dean, what it was like when the, uh, the head of the criminal division uh, out of nowhere, takes you to lunch and says, uh, you know, uh, uh, your boss is going down and I want to warn you that you, so you don't do anything stupid. You can't tell anybody, but let me tell you, Ehrlichman and Haldeman are going to go down and soon. And we need somebody at the White House we can talk to, and that's you. And, and, and you don't believe him. You know, I mean, this is kind of out of nowhere for me. And I, I'm one of the most loyal guys in the world. I, I, I work for the president for five years and then we misunderstand a tape and and i lose i lose faith i lose faith in his uh, uh in his purpose and his candor and then i start 20 years later 30 years later discovering documents you know that uh, that prove he did the right thing he was mal served by his lawyers a whole string of people. Now you could claim that Trump was malserved uh, oh, by Jeff Sessions. Oh, I don't think and, there's any doubt. I don't and, know and if by, Trump really handled anybody in his administration uh, that great. It seems like they were kind of playing him more than uh, he was Trump, Trump was a tough he guy to work for. Trump is a tough guy to work for. 
and he's not a he's not a politician. He's an entrepreneur, very successful entrepreneur, who's used to making decisions on the known facts at the time, not afraid to make a decision. Nixon, far more thorough, far more deliberative about what he was going to do, but he had to have the right facts. And John Dean says both, both Nixon and Dean agree that the first time he heard anything of the criminality of the cover-up was from John Dean on Wednesday, March 21st. I mean, you almost take that day apart hour by hour uh, because it, and just like they're going to do on January 6th, because right. it, it is the key date in all of Watergate with, with regard to President Nixon, the key date in all of Watergate. And, and, and my book, my book does that. I mean, the, the Nixon conspiracy for people who doubt what they've been told is the definitive book on what was going on <laughs> behind the scenes during Watergate. You read my book, and if I've persuaded you, I will have persuaded you that Nixon was driven from office and his re-election was voided by a secret cabal of judges and prosecutors and, and uh, a, a complacent me media that where there was only one story told, and that story was inaccurate and in, incomplete. Right. If not complacent, if complicit. Right. So they're in on the scam. I mean, a lot of, you don't see a lot of stuff that happens in Washington where a lot of these politicians, they're hanging out with the, the media people. Oh, they, they have close personal know, relationships. Yeah. If they like you, the stories are favorable. If they don't like you, the stories are negative on the same facts they can have written last week. They can have written last week and taken the opposite position for or against the other political party. I, I discover and I disclose in the book two instances where Bob Woodward is told, uh, uh, hinted in no uncertain terms about wrongdoing and improprieties, and he doesn't even follow up because it would interfere with the narrative. I can prove, I have proven that there were parties who were every bit as guilty as those involved in the cover-up, but had Democrat connections, and they skate free. And the Watergate Task Force urges uniformly that this particular person, Howard Hunt's lawyer, should be indicted. But he's a Democrat hero, and if he's included, it will interfere with the narrative that it was all White House, all crook all the time, Right. Because he cheats in other ways, but they didn't indict him. They it would foul up their story. Wasn't that Bennett? Was that the guy's name? Uh, uh, Bittman. Bittman, William oh, Bittman. Bittman, William Bittman. He was a uh, 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 a he did Lyndon Johnson huge favors, and Leon Jaworski was a protege of Lyndon Johnson. And you can sit there and you can read the notes from the meeting where they're deciding who's going to get indicted and who's not going to get indicted. Because if you were indicted in the cover-up in Washington, D.C., you were done. That uh, Conviction was presumed. And the person presenting the, the case for indicting Bittman is mocked and ridiculed and told that she won't make a good criminal defense lawyer. And just before, in the same meeting, a very weak case is presented against Chuck Colson. And Jaworski says, I'm familiar with the facts. I've met with Colson. I've met with his lawyer. And it's a close case. But I'm willing to sign the indictments because I'd like to bag him. You know, I really want to take him down off the shelf. And I'm convinced. Another set of notes. These are in the notes. It's incredible. He is so scared he's going to plead guilty to a, to a plea deal, so we won't have to prove the case. I don't care how weak it is. I want to get him. I mean, just you, you can't have prosecutors. Do right, that. it's totally yeah, an objective kind of uh, application of the law. It's incredible. I mean, the story is really incredible, and I think that that's the timeliness of this book. People should read it, or let's get the audio book so that they can see some of these same kind of uh, well, and it will blueprints it will, or plays, yeah. It will knowing what happened in the past, knowing the corners that were cut, documented, will scare them to death about today. 
you know, if that's what they were able to do and able to get away with, and we see what's going on, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but we see what's been done with abuse of power. Right. And it's all, it, it, this, it's all, it's <clears throat> always about power, William. People yeah. who have it don't want to give it up. That's the deep state. That's the federal bureaucracy. That's this Congress and this administration who are terrified of the upcoming election. And they're willing to do anything to preserve their, their uh, control of the Congress and their control of the executive branch. It was the same thing back in Watergate, except Nixon had won re-election by this unbelievable landslide. Every single state, except Massachusetts and the district, never, never exceeded by any other president in, in throughout our history. And they voided that election. And that was not easy to do. That's why they cheated. Right. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of almost like the so-called insurrection or whatever. There's a lot of deep state stuff going on on that date. But also, I think you wrote in your book that the DNC or the Democrats may have known or been informed that the break-in was taking place. So somebody may have leaked something to them. Yep. And they had already started preparing their cases. So there's they some real tipped, dark stuff. They had, been, they had been tipped in writing of this potential break-in. They didn't know when, but they knew it was coming. And so did the CIA. The CIA knew wrongdoing was planned, and they didn't do anything to alert Nixon or 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 to stop it. And that's all coming out, but it didn't come out for the American people right. uh, uh, during during the hearings. There was only Hunt, one side shown during the hearings. Hunt was not some kind of wet-behind-the-ears intelligence operator. He was the head of the CIA's office in Mexico City, a very important office, I think, in the he 50s. Was, like, he goes way back. He was the mysterious Eduardo who basically supervised the preparation of the Cubans for the Bay of Pigs invasion. That's how he got the Cubans to conduct the actual Watergate break-ins because they so trusted Eduardo, a a career CIA operative, field operative. Right. uh, And operation. uh, 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 Gordon Liddy was a a career FBI agent. uh, And the combination was absolutely lethal. Uh, And, and it, it, uh, I mean, I, Blame Liddy for bringing Hunt in, but it brought it brought down the presidency. That's where but it all started. It was a little kind of, it's you know, never, avalanche. It just grew into never been shown, never been shown that Nixon or Haldeman or Ehrlichman ever met with Liddy or Hunt. They were down the food chain, and they were yet, literally uh, in the plumbers. They were in like the basement. They That's were, how they got their name, right? Yeah, well, they were supposed to fix leaks, and and their original office was uh, there was only room for them down in the basement, and their exposed pipes. I was down there once. Uh, uh, I was Bud Krug's deputy, and Gordon Liddy was uh, on the on the staff. If you read his autobiography, he says when he first got there, I was assigned to show him around. Um, and Bud Krug, his life was ruined, disbarred. Lost job. Oh, uh, lost his marriage. Lost his license to practice law. Um, no, he took a real fall. Uh, Gordon got punished. I don't mean to suggest Gordon got off scot free. He spent five years in jail. Uh, but John Dean, who recruited Gordon, who supervised Gordon on the preparation of the uh, campaign intelligence plan, who was at the meetings where this plan was presented to the Attorney General of the United States, uh, John Dean skated scot-free. Scot-free. And Jeb Magruder got off almost as lightly. Uh, it's it just the uh, the prosecutorial abuse is awesome. Yeah, it's incredible. It's And you see this law abuse, lawfare. The government can do it and try to make it look ethical and a lot of times in my opinion it's not so uh well, well you gotta know, really be careful what's your what you're brought down to william how do you how do you present it? How, how do you prevent this happening 
there's every temptation in the world to do this. And one is you don't specially hire an independent team of special prosecutors. You use career guys like it's going on with Durham. Right. You have and the checks and balances and all the, they, all the uh, experience all as well. And all that. He's taken too long, but he's, he's thorough. Uh, uh, and you have them report into the Department of Justice. You can have a special prosecutor, but they report the way it's organized today uh, uh, into the deputy. We fixed the court. The, the church committee discovered that for the previous 40 years, the government through the FBI or the CIA had been breaking into Americans' homes and offices uh, in search of treasonous materials in the name of national security. And uh, uh, the, the, the court started to wonder about that, but the Department of Justice said, we can't go take a chance on one of 800 federal judges trying to convince that judge, who may not even have a security clearance, of the importance of having a mobile wiretap on this particular guy in place this afternoon. But we came up with a FISA court, and that's about as good a compromise as you could get. It, it was put into effect after Watergate, after the church committee. So there is a judicial review, but it's specially selected uh, uh, judges. The other thing, and there's always struggle, always debate, it's not a happy situation. You've got to have a free and vibrant press. Yes. If the press doesn't challenge those in authority, all is lost. We've seen it now. Let me tell you, we saw it then. It was worse then because there was only one side with three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, two national papers, two influential papers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, two national weekly news magazines, <coughs> Time and Newsweek, and that was it. Nobody else. Nobody else to show another point of view. Today, you can find the other point of view. You can find the much sought after diversity of news sources, but you couldn't find them back then. And that's helpful today. That's why people are angry with each other. That's why there's so much turmoil because there's a free press. And there should have been back before, but they just hated Richard Nixon. All right. They, they really just, just want him. Jeff, we are at 60 minutes. Is there something where I'm, I'm, I think that we should direct people to go get the book. You said that you have hard copies at a different site, right? We talked about yeah, that. Yeah, the, uh, the Nixon Foundation uh, uh, has, at, at one point, they had 500 copies. They, they got the order in early because they do tours all the time and they consider my book to be the definitive book. So if you're having trouble finding a hardbound copy, because it's selling so well that people are running out. Uh, uh, at least last reported, Barnes & Noble has it. Amazon doesn't have the hardbound copy and won't until next month. But if you're more eager, uh, go to the Nixon Foundation, nixonfoundation.org, and you can order the book from them. Gotcha. And I'll put that in the show notes as well as your website. People can go check that out, shepherdonwatergate.com. There's also an audiobook, so people can get the audiobook as well. Yes. And your yeah. contact information and social media are also on your website. There, right? there, there's there's Kindle and there's audio. It's just and there's and there's paperback. Right. There's, there's paperback that's already come out because they ran out of the hardbound. But right. some people, older people, they like holding that book. You know, it it seems uh, closer to truth if it's on a printed page. Right. What it is, if, it, I, if I if I can just, I know we've run out of time. Yeah, please, we're, uh, please. It's a on. supply chain issue on the reprints of the hardbound. They've run short of printing paper and they use better paper in the hardbound edition. So I'm told other publishers are, are running into this too. Mine just happened to sell faster. I see. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we summarize? I mean- or, Well, I wanna uh, thank you for giving me full phone. reign. I think we had a great time. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sorry if it gets confusing. But the, the bottom line is Nixon really got shafted. There's a paper trail, and your readers can follow it along with me if they'd like. 
And you lay it out very clearly in the book. You have all the details, all the players, all their names, their positions, the different court things are right there. So you kind of have an outline and then the body of the text fills that in. So I didn't find my, I mean, I can't say I'm a specialist. I knew a little bit about Watergate, but I didn't feel myself getting lost because I could go back and go, who's this guy? Who's Well, uh, yeah, that, that's true. There's, there's a list of players and there's uh there's a kind of a calendar and it's laid out chronologically. Uh, and there are those personal stories that help break up the, uh, the tension. I'm pleased you like the book. I hope I your listeners like the book. Likewise. Again, the title, full title is The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate and the Plot to Remove the President by Jeff Shepard, spelled G-E-O-F-F, last name S-H-E-P-A-R-D. That's for the audio just published November 2021. Thank you so much. Thank you, William. All right, stay there.